everybody, Robbie here and welcome to episode 42 of the Coach's Journey podcast with Jennifer Garvey-Berger. So Jennifer has a new book out called Unleash Your Complexity Genius and it is her fourth published work. Um, She is the co-founder and CEO of Cultivating Leadership and when she says that her books are getting shorter, there's a sense really that it's because she's honing in on the rich essence of her life's work. Um, In this episode, Jennifer and I share a conversation that traverses adult developmental theory, complexity, vulnerability, uh, the transformational power of community and of what she calls the fierce friendship that has helped her and her founders make their company incredibly successful and more successful than they could have imagined working with leaders uh, in the biggest companies in the world. Um, We explore the junctures of growth that often appear as binary choices, but aren't necessarily, and how the way forward uh, tends to spring from a more more balanced, a more holistic approach, integrating both sides of what looks binary. Um, Jennifer pulls these strands together into something of a manifesto for the power of connection between coaches, leaders, and people who can hold um, together, can hold uncertainty, and who can support each other to dream bigger and create a future filled with possibility, even as the world changes around us beyond recognition. So we talk about the necessary terror of change. We get into developmental theory. We we talk about the trap we fall into when comparing ourselves to others. And Jennifer has an amazing metaphor for that, um, which really opens up what it can be like uh, to be comparing ourselves unfairly with others. We talk about the simplicity on the far side of complexity. And we talk about polished and unpolished vulnerability and how to create more love in organizations. Um, and and that, that distinction between polished and unpolished vulnerability is a great distinction from her, her latest book, Unleash Your Complexity Genius. Um, Jennifer also shares personal reflections on growth, the uh, amazing story of how she came to live and work with her friends in a shared house in France, and much more. Uh, now, as as you'll hear from me in the opening uh, couple of minutes of the podcast, Jennifer's work's had a big impact on me. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the thing that I don't mention in that is that Jennifer's, uh, not the most recent one, but the book before that, um, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps is one I gave to my wife when she was starting a new, even more challenging role in the company she works in. And that shows that shows really what I think about um, about Jennifer's work. Um, it's fun. I get to practice uh, slightly nervously talking about some adult developmental theory stuff to Jennifer. Um, and she, luckily for me, it turns out I've been getting it mostly right um, all along because she doesn't correct me too much. Um, that's a lot of fun and gives me a lot more confidence for talking about that kind of thing in the future. And, you know, listening back to it just now, this episode, I, I got the sense that I often get with adult event, developmental theory. And, it, it, you know, we'll, again, we'll get into more about what that is and how you can learn more about it in, in the episode. Don't let it... Um, don't let, don't let me talking about it now distract you from what is a really a conversation about really what it means to be human. Um, but, you know, the way in which thinking about psychological development this way, it's, it's everything we do as coaches. It's the thing, even if we don't know we are. And it can be really useful to, to know that. But like I say, um, you know, Jennifer talks beautifully about how learning about developmental theory helped her see the whole human and how they make sense of the world and just how that's one of the most glorious endeavors imaginable. So look out for that um, in this conversation. I hope you get as much out of it as I did having it and listening back. Um, and uh, yeah, without further ado, um, let me introduce to you Jennifer Garvey Berger. Jennifer, welcome to the Coach's Journey podcast. 
Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited as well. I've been noticing um, that one of the things I noticed is that sometimes when, because you've got a new book out, congratulations, by the way, and I'm going to talk about more about that in a sec. I've interviewed people, you know, close to the release of a book before. And what I really loved about this one is I would have loved to have read your book anyway. So sometimes it's like I'm reading the book partly, partly, and it was this time because I was I finished it quicker than I would have normally because we were speaking. Um, but I would have read your book anyway. And in fact, I, I first found out that it was coming out because I emailed you to invite you on and your out of office said, why don't you pre-order the book? So just to let you know, that works. I pre-ordered it that day and uh, it <laughs> arrived on release day. So um, yeah, congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. It's amazing when an out of office works for at least one copy. That's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Now I know one copy was sold in this way. Thank exactly. you. Exactly. Um, and um, I thought I might start uh, with a little gratitude, gratitude soup. And people who want to know about that can read um, the latest book, which is Unleash Your Complexity Genius. Because, and you know, often that is how I, in some ways, how I like to start these conversations, because often the people I'm speaking to have played a role um, for me in something. And we, we talked a tiny bit before we started about having a book out. Um, and I was showing you your books, because I think it's a cool thing. I, I, I like it when people show me my books from, albeit this time, only the other side of the city, but it, it could have been another country. Um, and one of the things, you know, I, I do this partly because I, I, I try and notice what do I find like what do I find valuable, and then try and do it for other people. And I find it quite I find it valuable, but but quite hard sometimes to hear the impact of my work. But I think it's still important to share it. And so there are a few things that when I was sitting with that, one is the two the, the two latest books. So these are the two that I've read, which is Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps and Your Complexity Genius that we mentioned before. And I've got um, Simple hab Habits for Complex Times. And when we scheduled this in, I thought. <sighs> Haven't got time to read that before we speak, but I really appreciate the books. They are, they make like, they're really lean and for lean books, which makes it really readable. And so, um, you know, for you to know that one of the, you know, I, I've already just today, like given away, just having just finished the latest book, I've already given one to a client or, or I haven't actually given it, but I'm getting their address so I can send it to them. And I've given away mind traps a lot of times. So it's like, there's some ripple. And what that tells you is it was very useful for me. Both, both books were. Um, they always like, um, despite being lean, I always feel like they're putting me right on the edge of what I understand. Like there's always, even when there's a, a topic that I might know well, there's things in it that I haven't thought about before and, and new thoughts are sparked. So thank you for that. Um, I'd forgotten this. And then as we were thinking about this, I was thinking about your work and I remembered a time during, like I, Mind Traps has definitely um, had an impact on me. The time that I remembered was, I'm pretty sure it must have been 2020 because it was a kind of exchange. I, I, it was like an exchange about in the aftermath of George Floyd's death with somebody on WhatsApp, of course, the classic place to get um, have, have important conversations about deeper, nuanced topics. Um, but I remember being in Sainsbury's, a supermarket for those who aren't in the UK, and noticing essentially that I was like out of centre. And thinking about your book and thinking, well, what I wonder which of those things I'm trapped in right now, if any. And it was absolutely being trapped by rightness. So um, we'll talk more about this for listeners, but you know, we can talk more about this as we go. But the idea that sometimes we get short-circuited basically by trying to be right. And it was a really beautiful moment. I was able to let go of this ridiculous exchange where I was trying to prove to my 
one of my oldest friends that I was right about something and just let go of it. And I just felt so much better. And I, I, I don't think that was the only part of it, but I've really noticed that shift in myself from the kind of 2016 to 2018 period of desperately needing to be right and be heard about big cultural issues to just accepting things more. So thank you also for that. Um, I was on Art of Developmental Coaching a few years ago with Coaches Rising, and that was really valuable for me. Learning about particularly the stages of development there has really affected how I think about things. And there are still questions that I learned on that program um, that I use with clients. And particularly your sessions were, were impactful there. And then last of all, I just want to tell this story. Um, I don't think I've told it anywhere else really, but this is a kind of really, this might be a really strange, I don't know if this is a strange way that you've impacted me. When I was working with our mutual friend, Joel Monk, he was my coach. He asked me this um, question and, and people who are interested in Joel can check out the interview I did with him early, early podcast episode. He, um, he asked me a great question, you know, it's like a great coaching question for the end of an engagement, which is something like if we were to meet again in December and let's say it was August, like what would you love to be telling me that had happened? And from nowhere, I said that I'd written a book. And like, I never really thought about that. It had never really been my dream when I was growing up. And then he said, well, he asked me something like, what are you most curious about? And I realized I was most curious about whether this new mindset, I think I called it, that I felt like I'd been developing over this big transitional period in my life, whether it was valid in the world. Hmm. And then I set out to write that book and I didn't finish it by the December and it's still not out. Um, I have some books out, but not this one. And it's basically finished, you know, but it's not out. And when I finished the last draft that was finished, which was in 2019, I think. So it's a long time. It's been sitting there for a long time. Um, I reflected a lot on having been on the art of developmental coaching and then having read um, uh, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps. Because what they, what that work showed me really was why that mindset that I had been working on was valid. Because it was essentially a more complexity fit mindset. Um, and that, so the echoes of what I'd been writing about and thinking about that I found in Mind Traps was really reassuring. You know, I think sometimes if you find someone else is writing about the same stuff as you, it would be a kind of like, oh no, someone else has got that first. But actually for me, it was very reassuring as a human, I think. And for the books, it's like, well, I kind of believe now that if, you can have a lot of books about a good thing and that's a good thing. Um, but it's very reassuring for me. And then to give you an idea of the ripples of that, you know, in, in spring 2020, like a lot of people, I was sitting around thinking, what the heck can I do in the face of this, in the face of this, you know, madness that had been unleashed on us all and the chaos and all that kind of thing. And knowing the strain everyone was under, I thought, how can I help? And then I thought, well, you know, what? I've got like a book written about what I've discovered about how to deal better with complex situations and uncertainty. And so I released the first half of that, which is like the key ideas for free. It's on my website. People can check it out. Um, and it, ha you know, I, I don't think that thousands of people have read that, but hundreds of people had that part of the reason I'm thinking about it is someone emailed me just the other day, pretty much out of the blue saying, I just read this thing that you wrote. It's really changed how I think. And I'm going to share it with the people on my group program. And the reason I'm sharing that is not because it makes me sound like I've written a good book. It's because I don't think that would have happened if it hadn't been for me coming across your work and that's just like, so it's impacted me, but it's also rippled out. So thank mm. you, Jennifer, for all that. Wow. That's amazing. We can talk every day. <laughs> um, 
it's a, I mean, the thing you point to, I think is what drives a lot of us in this profession, which is the hope that something we do or say <clears throat> will show up in some way we couldn't have imagined uh, as helping somebody's life be easier, better, happier, richer, more connected, or whatever, um, more filled with love, whatever, whatever the, the thing is. But that there isn't anybody listening, listening to this conversation who doesn't have that as one of the driving impulses of why they get up in the morning. So thank you. That's why I get up in the morning. It's mm. beautiful to, to hear that, um, that for at least this one person, there are these various ripples, um, that I could never have imagined, um, but that live. Yeah. And I guess it's apt for someone who, whose work is a lot about complexity that, it, you know, it's like, we can't predict where the impact will happen. And sometimes that's the most beautiful, um, beautiful part of it. And the last piece of, I guess, gratitude, it's like that kind of wince is, you know, thinking about that book that I wrote, that's written and not out. Um, people who know my work well know that, you know, my, the books that have come out of mine are really about that. They're about what are these pieces of work that we want to do that we've wanted to do that, that aren't in the world and how do we get them into the world? And so the good thing about having written that book is I've written it for myself really. And now I know now that I've named that book again and named the, 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 the other book, the new book, power to choose its provisional title. Um, I kind of know that I'll have to, and I've talked about it here again, brought it back to life. I'll probably have to put it out. So that'll be partly to do with you as well, Jennifer. Um, I wonder I suspect this will take us to somewhere in the middle of your journey. A question that I often ask of guests is, where did you first come across coaching in the way that we are, mm. we talk about it and mean it now? I mean, it's funny. It, it goes pretty much to the beginning of my journey because my mom was an executive coach. Was she? No one um, on the show has ever answered that question with that answer yet. It's a bit surprising crazy, to me in right? some ways, but I guess she must have been a really, she must have been an earlier. Crazy. She was right at the beginning, yeah. right at the beginning. Um, and in 2000, no, in 1998 or something like that, like, oh, oh this is a long time ago. She was working on a book on coaching. And, uh, and she asked me to co-edit this book with her, um, which came out in like 2001. And I, you know, as a doctoral student at the time, um, my mom, her name is Catherine Fitzgerald. Catherine is a, uh, and still is one of the smartest, most interesting people I've ever met. Um, and, uh, and we we had, uh, sometimes we would have gatherings, parties or whatever. Uh, and all these clients would come to these gatherings. They were social gatherings, her birthday or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and they would share stories with me about what it was like uh, and how she had changed their life. And I was like, like, this is a thing, you know? And uh, over the course of editing this book, which is called Executive Coaching, 
practices and perspectives, something like that. But it was like a book called Executive Coaching. Um, and at the time, that was a differentiating title. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh. Um, and so it it was some years before I started doing coaching myself. Um, but the idea of coaching was in me like from from a relatively early moment in the history of coaching and the the capacity of coaching to make a dramatic difference not just in the life of the person we're talking to but in the lives of those that these people are somehow responsible for um you know the the people they lead and the people that those people lead and the people that those people lead you know as you as you coach senior leaders, the, the, the ripples are big. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And what a thing to, um, I have kind of, I, to have those parties where someone says, you know, and I can imagine why you would do it. Right. Cause you kind of, I kind of got a feel for this. Although I, so my mom was a counselor for quite a, the last couple of decades of her career. My dad had some time as a psychotherapist as, as well, but those are a bit different. So it's like, you don't, well, I, I didn't, we didn't meet the clients in that way. For, you right. Know, ob- those are quiet. Yeah. Right. Those are, those are kind of more private. Yeah. And so, but I have got this feeling, I wonder if I can, I don't know what it is. Like I've got this feeling of somebody telling me of the impact of one of my parents, but I don't remember what it is. I'll have to ask them. So I can kind of imagine, I can kind of imagine why you would want to do that. Like if I met the children of a coach I was working with and it was really changing my life while I was doing it, I would kind of want them to know, but what a, what a beautiful thing, I guess, unless it was a bit weird, it might've been a bit weird for you to get to hear those stories. It was fabulous. It was amazing. It was amazing. You know, my father was an English professor and I went to his retirement party and heard stories from, you know, these former teachers, these former students of his who were, some of them were now teachers and, you know, and, what I grew up, I became an English teacher and then I became, you know, I followed dad's footsteps and then I jumped over and became a, a coach and a leadership expert and followed mom's footsteps. So, mm. uh, yeah, there's something about my parents' journey that has been incredibly important in my life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so at first it was teaching. That was where you, that was the first career, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I taught middle school, so like 11, 12, 13-year-olds. And then later I taught older kids, 17, 18-year-olds. And then I taught a little bit of college and university and then a little bit of graduate school. I sort of just worked my way up the like the age ladder um, until, yeah, until I was working with leaders and organizations. Mm. And so that the shift from or maybe it was just the maybe they were all small shifts but the shift from following in your dad's footsteps to following in your mom's footsteps how did that come about yeah of course you don't you really understand shifts later yeah, yeah. not in the moment i really i i was a i was a teacher and i started to do professional development of teachers teaching teachers i felt like i didn't really know enough about that I went back to get my doctorate and I thought I'd be a college professor who taught teachers. And I did that for a while. So what what was the doctorate in? Is is this this what you were studying while you were editing your your mom's book? 
It was, yeah. it was in fact, um, the doctorate was in adult development, which is why it made sense for me to edit this book. Cause even though I wasn't doing coaching, I was, uh, studying how it is adults grow and change. This became the thing, um, that would animate basically my whole career is this question about how to, how do we adults grow and change, particularly to be better able to handle complexity. Um, and, uh, and I, I was doing that in graduate school and then doing that teaching graduate school, teaching teachers and principals. And then I had a kind of a side hustle, uh, which was in the leadership space. Um, and that side hustle, and then we moved to New Zealand and um, like life takes you places. And that 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 idea of doing transformational work to support teachers and principals in schools turned into the idea to do transformational work to support leaders in organizations and so it it was more of a gentle a gentle transition um than than like a it, it never felt like oh i'm making a career change mm. it never had that feel mm -hmm. i i felt like oh i'm moving to new zealand it had that feel but then it it, it was much more um emergent and hmm. there's, a, there's a story in in the, the latest book about reading one of robert keegan's books and how that was the that was like the thing that took the implication of the story that was the thing that took you to adult development i wonder if you could just you know give us a sense of that story and that particularly the insight that was in that book that that really caught you and then i guess for people i don't know if this is possible you must have been asked this a million times i could try and do it and see if i can remember what you taught me on on uh coaches rising for people who don't know what adult development is Maybe after you've given us that sense of what took you there and what so excited you about Keegan's work, you could give us a, just a top level of that, mm. of that idea. Mm. So, you know, I, I went into graduate school. Um, I was like 25, 26, something like that. I'd been a teacher for a few years. I started young. Um, so I'd been a teacher for um several years and i went back to get my doctorate and early on in that first year i don't know if this is a story you want but anyway this is a story you're going to get <laughs> early on in that first year i um i was pregnant with our first child and um and the shift from being a teacher to being a doctoral student and then from being like a a woman to being a mom was these these shifts were uh, cataclysmic, right? Like they they were so huge, and I could just feel my identity was like held together with scotch tape, right? Like I was just barely, um, barely making sense of me, and uh, and at the same time, I was reading this book called "In Over Our Heads" by Bob Keegan. Um, and taking his class and uh, and watching me become disorganized um, in the like like my identity becoming disorganized in the 
in the path towards becoming reorganized in a different way uh, and studying this, the way we, we grow and change over time. It was breathtaking for me because I, I wasn't just learning it. I was, I was absolutely being it. Like it was, it was very alive for me. And, um, and particularly alive for me was this, this sense of the shift from, and this gets into the theory a little bit, uh, the sense of the shift from the socialized form of mind, which is where we're kind of breathing in the expectations and the hopes and the norms of the society um, we've come to affiliate with. And, uh, and moving towards the self-authored form of mind, which is as we begin to write our own story, as we begin to not take in um, those views, perspectives, expectations, but begin to write something of our own views, values, expectations of ourselves. Um, and like reading about that theoretically and knowing that I absolutely could not do that. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> like, like as it was, as, um, as Bob would be describing it, I'd be like, Oh, I see how that's theoretically possible. I see how that's theoretically possible. And then you get to one place where he was describing something. I'd be like, no way. Like that's not even theoretically possible. Like this guy's a looney tune. And, um, and so having that, that idea that I wasn't just like falling apart, that I was, I was, it was falling into something else and uh, that something else was going to be uh, qualitatively different and still in some ways qualitatively the same as I had been. It was just like the most helpful idea I'd ever heard. And so I guess that's part one and part two of the, the same story is as I was doing research in this, I was lucky enough to be one of three doctoral students who got to work very closely on this big research project Bob was leading. Um, and uh, I do a, a billion interviews, these things called subject-object interviews, which are the measure of development. These interviews are hard to learn to do. They're... Um, like very exacting learning to do them is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and teaching other people how to do them has been one of the greatest joys of my life. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and as, as I would do these interviews, I would realize that the thing that I was trying to do is see a whole human and see how that human in front of me made sense of the world. And that, actually understanding the way another person makes sense of the world in this case using adult development as kind of a a frame but understanding that as hard as i could like, like really as hard as i could um it it was one of the most glorious endeavors imaginable it, it was um really seeing another person brings love between you, right? Like that is what love is to really see without fixing or changing or correcting, but really, really seeing and admiring another human being in their fullness. Um, I changed my life. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's beautiful. And I, you know, I guess I haven't done those interviews, um, but you know, I, I have a, like a feel of it of when you really see, you can really see something through someone's eyes for one of a better phrase, you know, with their, the way they see things is a really, yeah, it's a really wonderful experience. Mm. And I think it's like a, it probably can't, we probably couldn't, it would probably be impossible for us to say too many times, emphasize the, the thing you said, right. Which is that you weren't falling apart, that you were mm. going from, what did you say? Uh, organized to disorganized but on the path to being organized again in a different way mm. Mm. because that feeling of i once had this idea that it's like um i'd never done trapeze right but i imagine that there's this point if you're jumping from one to the other it's like it's like even when you like even when you know right even when you, you've read the book like you say or you've, you've heard somebody teaching it you kind of know you're going to get organized again the trapeze artist probably knows they're going to catch the trapeze, but that does, I, I mean, for me, at least in my, all the little ways I've changed and developed it, it that period of disorganizedness between the trapezes, it is a, quite a thing. It's necessarily terrifying, right? It's necessarily terrifying as those things that we've relied on to make sense of our lives fall away. And the new things that we will rely on to make sense of our lives have not yet been born. Um, it is the, I often think that developmental theories are mostly crafted by men, right? This is where they mostly come from. But I, I often think that if, if they had been more crafted by women, we would get many more labor analogies Yeah, because there, there is this, like like between being pregnant and holding a child in your arms yeah. there is um there's difficulty right and that difficulty for many many years was actually very dangerous and um now it's mostly not dangerous at all but it still feels dangerous uh as you are as you're in the process of birthing something into the world and uh, and you have no idea what that thing is. <laughs> uh, you know it's human, um, but that's pretty much all you got. Yeah. Uh, you might know if it's a boy or a girl. You don't know who that person is. And so um, there there is this longer gestation and birthing period, uh, but because it's because we we don't have a lot of stories about it and we don't have the physical evidence of a, a new life. Um, it just feels terrifying. You know, as you could imagine if you were pregnant and not knowing what that was or what was happening and then you went into labor and you didn't know what that was. And you, like, you had no idea what any of this thing was, that whole experience would be just beyond terrifying. And I think a lot of us experience our own growth that way. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It's a, is a beautiful metaphor for perfect metaphor or feels perfect for, for all that kind of thing. It, it's probably worth saying, um, you kind of referenced a couple of them in the, in, I think in, in, in Bob Keegan's model, right? That's the the levels that you're talking about that it's worth saying for people who, that we can't do justice to that incredible field of work in the space of, even if we spent the rest of this conversation talking about it, but is this right? That basically this is what I remember from that course, from other things I've read and heard, you know, we're going to go through the, the ideas of adult development theory really are that there are 
a series of particular or it can be approximated to a series of stages that each of us might go through as as the world asks more of us or, or we're faced with different challenges maybe you might want to say something to correct correct that language but just that there are a series of kind of patterns amongst humans that seem to be there including those two levels that you just referenced which i think i've heard you or somebody else say there that are kind of like this is the shift that often is happening when people are i guess coming to coaching or mm. wrestling with one of these transitions in their adult mm. life the most common one that we'll be seeing That's is right. from from the socialized mind is the name given to it which is this thing you mentioned about um all the hopes and ideas about how to be, I guess, a good person in different ways in a society to a place where you define that much more in the self-authored mind. Um, please correct anything in there that needs correcting. Ideal. You've done super well. As you've touched on gender there, like I'm aware when I've thought about the socialized mind, maybe it's because of the age I am, because uh, I'm late thirties and we've just had a baby, and so I, I'm I can see the well two, maybe two years ago, but I can I've been able to see exactly the extra layers that at that stage in a professional woman's life it gives to the kind of things that you're talking about. Like we're, we're living that now, um, and it's very very hard. I can see what it is asking of my wife Emma, um, and I feel like I've in my coaching I've again perhaps because of the age I am and therefore some prediction of the age of clients is there anything like what what is there feels like there's something around those two stages and the differences for men and women is there anything you're able to say about that yeah i think i mean i mean there's a lot to say about gender and a lot of people have studied this and know way more about it than i do um but the, there are a series of societal expectations um, programmed by our Western society for hundreds of years um, that encourage a set of ideas or behaviors about what success looks like for men and what success looks like for women. And, um, and then there's, a, there's biology there's a set of bio, biological goals and capacities, um, many of them having to do with things like child bearing and rearing um, that also make a set of demands on us. So we have like both the, the outside demands and then we have these inside demands of, of our, own, our own bodies, our own biology and the way um, the way women have needed to care for young, become attached in new ways, um, become affiliative in different ways, because that was how to maintain the next generation. This is um, how we've evolved. And, uh, and there are, some theorists who really would dispute the thing that I just said. So I just want to acknowledge <laughs> that um, yeah. this, this is, you read one line of theorists and you get this and you read a different one and you get that this is all crap. The thing that I just said. Um, but I think that those two things together, the kind of internal um, embodied 
relationship to the creation of new life um, and the capacity to create new life and the external um, pressures of society, which has been um, in many ways ridiculous for women, just a, absurd. This idea that you can you can have all of these things just leaves um, most women who are trying to have like, this rich family life and also this rich career life like on their knees, you know, and feeling incredibly um, overcome by their inadequacies, what, what feels like their inadequacies. Um, yeah, I think it shifts the developmental story. I think it shifts what, what demands are made upon us and how we how we deal with them. And, and sometimes I think it's actually pretty advantageous, right? When you, when you come to a limit, um, something has to give. And uh, often what gives is the former way we were organized. We become disorganized and we reorganize. That's pretty advantageous to have something that brings you to that and helps you reorganize and you grow. Yeah, forces it really. Like, you know, and I've seen this quite often with friends, family, clients, you know, those late 20s, early 30s, the biology really starts to kind of kick in the sense of mortality kicks in and yeah if you can't yeah like you say you're, you're kind of forced to make a shift that i think you know yeah men can probably speech marks get away with not making uh, that's right very hard to do that if yeah like you say if, if there's these i think it's, it probably was something you said on developmental coaching or something you know that that, that, that helped me see that in a new way you know it is this impossible mesh of to be a good mother, this has to happen. To be a good um, professional, this has to happen. And to be a good woman in the 21st century, you have to do everything. That's right. And it's like, that is a that is a mean set of circumstances. Yeah, that's right. I find my clients, I, I, often, I often think of them as dealing out a deck of like identity cards and they compare themselves. You know, I compare myself in the mother identity card to the best mother I know. And I compare myself in the work identity card to the best worker I know. And I compare myself in the like, the like scientist identity card to the best researcher I know. And so you have all these cards that are all pieces of our identity and you choose some exemplar from each piece who has generally nothing else but that piece, right? Like the best researcher doesn't have a family doesn't do other things, just researches all the time. The best, you know, the best of each of these things tends to be like very unique focused. And you say, would you want that whole person's life, that person's whole life? And they say, absolutely not. Like, absolutely not. Um, But you're going to make yourself feel bad. You're going to hit yourself with that stick um, because you don't, in that category, you don't shine in the way that that person shines. It's like very, um, very much sets us up to feel awful about ourselves. Yeah. I hope that a lot of people are listening to that thinking, oh, this is me and getting that beautiful insight, um, which can allow us to make choices. Um, I think that's, that, is that the subject object move basically happening there? That's right. It's like, um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So for, I think, I think let's do a couple of more building blocks before we come back to your story. So maybe now that I've mentioned that one, uh, I'll, I'll do that. And then you can tell me where I've got it wrong. And I'll ask you a question. You can, you can answer it. So, 
one of the most interesting this is one of the things that resonated with what i was trying to write about in in that draft book it, you know it's like when we can see what's happening to us or what's happening in our life we're no longer subject to it it's no longer happening to us it becomes an object we can see and so for people listening this is a lot of what you're doing people are doing in their coaching it's helping their clients see something slow down enough in the conversation by asking great questions and reflecting things back to see something they hadn't seen before, which gives them this little bit more choice and perspective. So correct that. And then maybe I think the other thing we probably need before we, especially to get into the books a little bit more is the, maybe the relationship between developmental adult development and complexity and say something about the complexity complicated distinction which actually to interrupt you're, you're you already which i once tried to do on this podcast got slightly wrong and I, i'll talk about that in a sec if, if, it, if it feels relevant got didn't get slightly wrong but had a slightly strange exchange because i was trying to do it when i hadn't thought it through properly but um yeah so yeah so is there something you can say just to give people the building blocks enough about developmental psychology and and complexity so that we can we can then jump off into other places sure um your description of subject object was beautiful so we'll that's definitely just, a relief i was probably doing the thing right where i'm comparing my understanding of developmental psychology to you <laughs> it's fine robbie i can show that yeah. Uh, yeah we do that we do that it's probably helpful in many ways and as long as we don't use it as a stick to beat ourselves with probably cool um yeah this question about complicated versus complex. This is a, a distinction made famous by a complexity theorist named Dave Snowden, who's a Welshman, uh, still writing and um, thinking about complexity in super interesting and confronting ways. Uh, his website is called Cognitive Edge. I think it's cognitive slash edge.com. But if you Google cognitive edge, you'll get it. Yeah, we'll find, we'll um, put links to everything. People are listening, we'll put awesome. links in the show notes for stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and Snowden makes the distinction between uh, different kinds of systems, right? There are systems that are predictable and they repeat. And, um, and you can expect that something that's happened before will happen again. You can expect, uh, that a problem you solved before you could solve it again in much the same way. And um, he breaks that down into two different kinds of problems, some of which are obvious, he calls them, um, and some of which are complicated. And this idea of complicated problems are those that you need some experience or expertise. They're tricky. They're tricky. And so, you know, like my accountant can figure out my taxes every year but I can't. Um, so they're figure out a ball, right? But I can't do it. An um, uh, engineer can, can create uh, the new iPhone, right? Like that just came out today. Um, but I can't do that, right? Like it takes expertise. But that, those engineers can create phones, right? Like those accountants, they can do taxes. They can do my taxes. They can do your taxes. They can do anybody's taxes. And these engineers, they can, they make stuff. They can do that. And they can do it pretty reliably in different contexts. That's complicated. And then there's another set of things that comes from a cold, totally different kind of system, uh, a complex adaptive system, which uh, are so intricate and so interdependent 
uh, that you cannot know what's going to happen next, right? Child rearing is the classic here, right? Like how many things go into a child's life? You have a two-year-old, right? How many things go into how that two-year-old is going to grow up and be a grown-up? You cannot know, and we can approximate that in and often in kind of ludicrous ways of if my kid gets into the right the right kindergarten, then they'll get into the right elementary school, then they'll get into the right college, then they'll get into the right university, then they'll get into and then they'll have a successful life. But you know, this is um this is false, right? This is a this is a story we we make up about things that are predictable, and it's our our grasping for that. And uh, and it turns out that our embodied system is the more we know about neuroscience, the more we understand our biology, the more we understand that our psychology and our neurology is like incredibly predictive. We're constantly, our emotions are predictive, our um, our reactions are predictive, our our thoughts are. We're always putting picking up the past and putting us in front of us as the future. Um, and if we do that and we are subject to it, then we believe these stories. And over time, we can grow to have more and more of that like natural shaping become an object for our reflection so we have choices about it so that we can notice, oh, I'm living in that. That's a really simple story about the way kids grow. Um, and we can notice that we're living in that kind of simple story. And then we can choose another story that's roomier. And this is the connection between this inner thing about how do we grow? How do we see more of ourselves? And how do we see kind of more of the operating system by which we live? Um, Because these old automatic operating systems require that somebody in charge is like handling things for us, right? That if we're not authoring it, somebody's authoring it, right? Uh, and in this world, less and less, we can point to, oh yeah, I'd really trust that. I'd really trust my organization to author my life. I really trust them because like, like I've worked for them for 30 years and I'm going to work for them for the rest of my life. I really trust them. I really trust my minister to author my life. I really trust my, my mayor to author my life. Like this is kind of a cringy thing. Like you hear this list and you think, no, that's <laughs> dangerous. Not a good idea. Do you think that, like, was it? A, you did it used to be a better idea? I think it used to be a better idea. Yeah, to trust those kinds of people or the organization. You trust your rabbi, right? Like, we had we had kind of we had village elders, right? And those village elders were often wise, and the world was simple enough. I mean, there was all kinds of room for misery in this thing. Like, but the the rules of the road. You read Jane Austen. There are rules. You know what they are. Everybody knows what they are. We all agree. You have to follow those rules, or you get in big trouble. Right? What are the rules now? We don't know, and they'll be different tomorrow. And so, how do we make sense of that? We need much more sophisticated operating system in us to be able to make sense of all those changes and make up our minds and live. Um, I, I think it used to be, it maybe wasn't easier to be happier, um, but it was easier to know whether you were coloring inside 
those lines or not. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to tie that up and then I'll ask a question about that. Um, it's, it's that right. That the, the needing more and more perspective is the, is, are these, de- is these developmental shifts. It's like, that's what it's like the world being more complex, require, you know, requiring all these more of us to be able to make the decisions to live, live that kind yeah, of Yeah. And we knew that that was true. Piaget told us this is true for kids, right? That we had these like particular sets of heuristics or whatever to make sense of the w- world. And we would be able to stretch into those for only so long. And at some point they would break. And when they broke, this thing called growth would happen. And then we would, you know, like become unorganized and reorganized. And then we would hold on to that for as long as we could. And then (laughs) something about the world around us would be like, no, you cannot have that rule about the world and still make sense of the world that you're in. And then that thing would break. And then we have the next one. And it's, this is what's happening to us, right? Like you can't have that view of the world. You can't hold that assumption and have the world make sense. Mm. Wow. Like now I need a new career. I need to reinvent myself or, you know, like something breaks apart and then we use those pieces and construct a new thing. I think it's just like a really interesting, I love that. I love that thing. Like there's a thing that, and you know, I hear this from, you hear this from clients. I hear this from clients. Um, it's like, ah, you know, it's the kind of this kind of, gr- you know, sometimes it's an audible groan, you know, which means, ah, oh, I can't unsee that thing that I've just seen. That's right. The thing is just broken. Ah, uh, oh, it's a bit like I said about talking about the book. I just kind of that, that draft book. It's like, I just caught this thing. It's like, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing that I do. And now I'm going to have to do something with it. How annoying, but the right, you know, good, but, but annoying. Um, exactly. Right. But annoying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what's interesting for me is um, in this, let me see if I can capture this, this, this idea and thought. So I had a load of, I had a load of these things break um, about 10 years ago, uh, particularly around kind of how terrible the world was. I had this story, we could say, simple story, that the world was terrible, it was getting worse. And then by accident, I came across all these other people telling a story about how actually in these ways, the world is like better than ever before. And it's not that they're not right that few, like, for example, that fewer women die in childbirth now per childbirth than ever before, almost almost none in a country like this. And, you know, everyone in a country like the UK knows somebody probably who's been through a childbirth that would have resulted in them dying if they were alive 500 years ago or something like that. And I used to think that all the kind of the world's so complex thing was a part of that same uh, simple story that the world is bad. You know, that like everything's terrible. We live in this awful place. Of course, there are bad things happening. Like I, I, wanna, I guess I want to catch that that is a, those two are both too simple, the stories, right? Um, I need to say that before anyone, anyone thinks that I'm saying there's nothing bad happening in the world. So I had that thought, and that was, that was one of the, I think it probably came from, again, Art of de- Developmental Coaching, reading Mind Traps around that time. Listening to you, it's like, oh, yeah, actually, I, the world is more complex, was what I got to. But, but then I have a, so there's a, people who are supporters of the podcast or members of the community we have can ask questions. And one of them asked a great question, which I want to kind of give to you now, which is, is essentially, 
a coaching question about complexity. And you know, if we see the world as complex, if we assume the world is complex, we see it as complex. And if we assume, you know, because often we see what we assume. And what are the, I guess, uh, the question, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to remember, but if instead of, I guess something like this, if instead of seeing the world as more and more complex, we chose to see the world as more and more simple, like, what do you think would happen? And, and yeah, what comes up mm. for you as I ask, ask that slash share a, a long paragraph of thoughts? Mm. I, yeah, I think I think we have to unpack what it means to see the world as complex or see the world as simple. Um, complexity got like a really it got really popular as a word. Oh, complexity is really popular. I remember when my first book was coming out, the my editor was like, "There has to be complexity in the title of this book somehow." And by the time mind traps came out they were like i'm not sure we can have complexity in the title of this book because the kids um i think it is in the title i actually don't remember it is um, unlocking leadership mind traps how to thrive in complexity it's, it's there you uh, go there you go i i think it it's turned out to be in the title of all of my four books <laughs> um and and then there's like a like i i once spoke at a at a leadership conference um and they were gonna put me right after this person who wrote a book like called like the art of simplicity or simplicity rocks or simplicity simplicity's great and complexity sucks or whatever it is like whatever that that thing was and they were like oh you you two would probably hate each other and i was like i really doubt this right because almost Almost always when people are talking about simplicity, almost always what they mean is the rich simplicity of essence, right? They don't mean simplisticness, right? Nobody's like, oh, let's grab onto fallacies. They're like really easy to understand and let's propagate them. I mean, this is the way many political parties work, let's be clear. But by and large, um, what people who are craving something simpler are looking for is can we get rid of the what I think of as the complicatedness, the way we goop up things by bureaucracy and 10,000 processes and all these ways that attempt to keep us safe from the overwhelm of our mortality or the overwhelm of how vulnerable we are to having our hearts broken or the the terror that somebody we love could get sick and there's nothing we can do about it. Um, and so we we like cushion ourselves from those ideas with money and cars and stuff. Um, and we cushion ourselves in organizations with rules and bureaucracy and like um, forms to fill out. And and so I'm a huge believer in simple, um, but it's the, the simplicity on the far side of complexity. You know, the simplicity that is the, the connection to essence as opposed to the simplistic nature of, I think I understand it all and I think I can control it all. Um, I think that idea, this, uh, this like, 
I can understand it all. I can get it right. I can control it. I can know what's going to happen. I can make stuff happen in that way. I think the more of that we get, and I, you know, plenty of people believe in the world, this world too. First of all, they're exhausted because they're wrong all the time. And then they think, oh, I have to work much harder. To I was wrong this time. That means I screwed up or my people screwed up or we need another rule or whatever. We have to work much harder so that this thing doesn't happen again. And so they're constantly overwhelmed um, and they make life bad for other people. Like we, we can't ever have that kind of thing happen again. So it's life. It's life. And so I think that there is, um, I think that there are dangers our, our firm, we've changed our, the way we express our purpose right now. But um, in 2016, we came up with a purpose statement that was about um, helping people get beyond simplistic expressions and beliefs about the world uh, and the, the dangers, which we were seeing in 2016 was a, a year of a lot of dangers um, and a lot of simplistic responses to those dangers. Um, I think that is, I think simplistic responses are scary, understandable, understandable, kind of just warm and delicious when you have one. Um, but, you know, it's like, it's like having chocolate pudding for every meal. It will not create a healthy life. Yeah. And I think, and, you know, one of the ideas from, from uh, unlocking leadership mind traps that stayed with me the most is I think I can't exactly the phrasing you use, but it's rather than control enable or, or creating the conditions instead. It's like, there's a simplicity in that. Like there's a real relief actually in, in 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 knowing that you can't control the thing um, and this actually gets to i'm aware that in bringing this back up am i being trapped by being right but i actually had the, the conversation i mentioned before i had a great conversation with a woman called kathy presland on the podcast and we talked a bit about complicated complex and we had this exchange which was i used child rearing as an example and she said well actually i think that's really simple it's just love and it's like there's there's the like that's the other side of of complexity, right? It's like, yeah, if you just really love the little being, then that's a pretty good chance that you're enabling that being to have a good life. Um, and it's, uh, I got to say, like, if I think about that, it's a massive relief that I, for some reason, had that sense through the things I've learned, the things I've read, who I am, where I came from, all those things. Because, you know, that's it. <laughs> I mean, the, the economy around new parents and the, the conflicting you must do exactly this stuff that you encounter is a, a minefield and if back to that socialized mind piece how to be a good parent well you can have a thousand people you can have uh, where well, you could have that same thing with the cards but you're dealing out over here to attachment parenting over here to super nannies over here to something else over here to how you're they're sleeping and all these things and yeah, always comparing how you're doing to the child who sleeps the best, who walks the fastest, all, all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so, I, it, you know, it, it's like the, it's a massive relief. It, it, there is a simplicity and a massive relief to letting go 
in those times. And of course, I say this as someone who has that relief some of the time and some of the time absolutely does not have that, have that relief personally. Yeah, I was working with a, working with a set of accountants, bankers um, years ago. And, and at the end of whatever, we had a day together. And at the end, one of them said, I never understood the redemptive power of complexity. Huh. And I was like, that's, that's amazing. How are we redeemed by this idea that, yes, there are things that organize us. You can love your child like crazy and also screw them up massively, right? Like you can love your child like crazy and have bad things happen. And so, yeah, it's an enabling condition. It's absolutely the the ground of parenting and it guarantees you nothing. There is <laughs> mortality guarantees you nothing except death, right? The only guarantee is the thing we don't want. And uh and it, it's the only one. It's the only one. And and so I I think when you notice that the only thing that's guaranteed is the thing that we don't want and everything else is up for grabs. Yeah, you can either be freaked out by that or you can begin to find the redemptive power of that to breathe a little bit more easily, to um, to craft the conditions of your imperfect life in ways that are that bring more of create the conditions for more of what matters most to you. Yeah. And I love what that that, that person said. And for some reason, you know, the word redemptive, what it made me think is, you know, actually when we're trying to control everything, it's kind of like a God complex. It's kind of like we believe we're a God who can who can predict exactly how this, in my case, little girl will turn out and how she'll have the best time. And I will be, you know, God for her, but I will also be it for my clients and my uh, wife and my, if I, when I worked in organizations, my organization, because I can, it's the hero, right? I, you know, hero complex, I can do anything. And it is, you know, that, that language is powerful to release that, you know, it's like, mm. no, I'm just, and we talked a bit before we switched on about how perfectionism has been risk or releasing perfectionism has been a big part of my journey. It's like, you know, I am an imperfect human and therefore uh, I'll just do what I can and that's it. And I can't control how life turns out for this little girl, but I can do some things. That's right. That's right. It, it makes us, it actually lets us be in our legitimate power instead mm. of like the illegitimate power of a God complex. It lets us understand what, how are we legitimately powerful? Father is like one of the most powerful things in the, in the life of a person. And that's super legitimate. Can you make things happen? No, but you shape the conditions of her early life and and thus the conditions of, you know, like all her relationships into the future. Yeah. And you got to be careful because it's like responsibility of that can weigh right. heavy. That's a, bit, right. a bit like knowing that the only certainty is death. Like I'd much rather know that I have that responsibility than accidentally realize, you know, know that I'm going to die than accidentally realize in, in another 30, 40 years and then be like, oh shit, I should have done yeah. those other things. I'd rather know now that's that, right. that, that that that's happening hard as hard as that feels when yeah it's and it's heavy about what's what's yeah. going on hmm. gonna just jump straight in with this one because i think we're, we're like right on the edge of it and we haven't we haven't kind of like 
And maybe it's the perfectionist in me who wants to go back and complete some bits from earlier, right? But I finished reading uh, Unleash Your Complexity Genius today. And of course, the last part of that is about what we're talking about now. It's about love. Mm-hmm. And in there, there's this absolutely beautiful bit about um, polished and unpolished vulnerability and the importance of it in creating connection and creating essentially love in organizations. I wonder if, yeah, you could speak to that a little bit. Um, and I wonder if there are, this is quite a big question, so feel free to bat this one away. I wonder if there are unpolished, there is some unpolished vulnerability that you'd be willing to share. And mm. I can have a go at that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this, um, one of the things that's been cool about being in this profession for a while is that you 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 see trends come right and there's like a vulnerability trend um thanks to Brene Brown and others uh and she's a genius um and and because of her uh leaders understand and because of the work of Amy Edmondson which I also super admire um, leaders understand that they have to bring something of their humanity to work. And I started to notice, you know, I spend time in leadership conferences. I watch senior, you know, like the meeting of the top 300 leaders and the chief executive or whatever, the CHRO or the C, chief finance officer, whatever, right? Like somebody with a C in the title, right? Like they'll stand up and they'll have a story and that story will make people in the audience like feel moved and they'll maybe even cry. And maybe even the person on stage like tears up a little bit. And then you go to the next one of these conferences and that person stands up on the stage and they give the same speech and maybe, and the audience is moved. And like, maybe that person cries and, and it's like, Oh, you're actually telling us something about yourself that you want us to know. And you're telling it in this moving way, but actually you're still the hero of the story, right? You're, you're still, um, you're still offering to us something that makes you shine, you know, like, like, Oh, you know, I, my my grandparents were poor farmers um, and they've instilled these values in me. And this is what my, my grandpa said to me or, you know, or whatever. My father died when I was young and this is what happened. And, but all of it is to, to show like, oh, you're a great guy. And it wasn't until we started to have leaders um, like say things that they're really, they're really not sure how it's going to go. We, we ask leaders to imagine there are these sliders and this is for intimate conversations, right? This is for like when I'm with my top team, but a slider between um, polished and raw and a slider between like heroic. And I'm not sure how I stand there um, and to dial as close to the unfamiliar side as you can. Um, and this is a hard thing to ask because our our, like our our minds and our bodies really reject this and often it takes our living through real hardship and living 
to be able to say, oh, I can, yeah, yeah, look, I can do this thing. I can do this thing. So we often are now asking leaders any questions we can to help them avoid this hero space, to help them just be in this, I don't know. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know how I did there. I don't know how I handled that. I worry that I did things wrong. You know, any of those things, which is actually vulnerable. And it's actually the way our hearts open to each other and, and touch. It is actually the way we, um, the way we can feel each other's humanity instead of like trying to do this like a polished, here I am, am I good enough? Do you like me? And then you have to do the, here I am, am I good enough? And then we're, we're both acting eventually, you know? And is there, so one of the things that comes up for me in that, and as I was reading, so it's like, I think I hear what you're saying that I didn't quite get from the book. And it might be because I was reading it quickly because uh, we were about to speak uh, that last bit. But um, yeah, the particular sense of you're right in it still. You know, you, you know, you hear somebody say who's still in the, still between the trapezes in some way, still like uh, mm. in the disorganized state before that. I know we're talking small scales probably here rather than the developmental shift, but it could be that. But you know, these, these little times when I don't know how this is going to turn out. Because it, it's interesting to, I think a, another part of the, what is it? It's like a, another thing that you see a lot is, which is not quite the same as, as I think what the speeches that you're talking about is, is the kind of hero's journey uh, story, mm -hmm. which, which tells the story of how it was bad, but how in the end that right. led back to me being here today, uh, having learned this thing. And there's a way in which that can be used strangely, you know, but also there's a way in which it's, it's only how everything <laughs> works if we're learning, right? It's like, you know, when I was thinking about what are the things that I've done or that have happened in my business, for example, because that feels a bit easier than in my personal life, but, um, that are, that like I did, didn't end well. One of the interesting things is that. I've done quite a lot, I guess I've done quite a lot of work. And what, one of the things my coaching that I've received has helped me do is take the learning from them and so see how, although they didn't end well, they are useful. And for me, when I think about the things in my life that I've done that I am most embarrassed and horrified that I've done, uh, the way that I am at peace with myself despite them is to remember that, oh, the reason that I am able to the husband I am now is because of the mistakes I made as a boyfriend in the past. Like it, you know, and and repeat that across. I mean, I don't have it as fatherhood, but across work, across all these other parts of life. Um, yeah, I don't know what 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 you make of that. Yeah, I love this um, distinction. There are sometimes that people tell these stories. So we've heard a lot of them now. And there are some times that they tell them and they, they've been, they, they have not yet made sense of them. Mm. They are carrying them, you know, in a way like a wound. 
um, you know, like I, one of the stories that's n- not so uncommon is a story like um, my best friend and I started a startup years ago. Uh, this is not my story, but I, I've heard it actually a bunch of times. And um, it became more successful and more successful. And at some point, I needed to decide, are we going to go with what the organization needs? Because this person can't handle where we've grown to. Or am I going to go with what the friendship needs? And um, and in the stories that I remember, they go with where the organization needs. And they, they like fire this best friend. And they can come to make sense of that. Um, but often in the stories that I've heard, they, they just carry still such deep shame and pain about it. And one of the things that telling a story that's unresolved does is it helps people make sense of it. It helps others help you make sense of it. Yeah, you were 23 when you, when you made this move or... Yeah, but how many how many times have you done something afterwards that you've learned from it? Uh, to to connect the exactly what you said, the thing that we can learn, the way that it did change us, um, and to make that connection is really powerful work. And I think you're right. Uh, um, for our growth to happen, we have to make sense of those stories in particular ways. And so it it might be that the so, so often the stories have either this quality of old wound I haven't really connected with yet, um, or I'm in the middle of this thing and I am between the trapezes and I don't know. I, I just want to let you know how much I don't know how this is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Which is itself like a. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it feels like yes. Yeah, so I, I, I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to catch one. See if I can catch one for me that's like going on right now. I think probably the closest one I have is where we're potentially days away from moving to a lovely house in the countryside or or buying that house, but we ha- we still, for various circumstances that are long to go into, have no idea how that's going to turn out because for some, for, again, for bizarre reasons, there's a parallel sales process going on. Uh, and with a different buyer and a different seller. And apparently if they complete first, they get the house. And if we complete first, we get the house. And who knew this was going to happen? Not our solicitor didn't know about this the kind of thing anyway. But it does mean that we're right in the middle of this. And it's, it's pretty, I can, I, I, I can feel a lot of like, it was quite hard actually. I had a nap before this call because before that I was amped up because our solicitor's going on holiday and for two days in the middle of this and it's like no like what if those two days are the thing and so we're like right in it and like I, also i have no idea what will happen for us if if we don't get it at this stage because we're so close that no matter how many mindset tricks i've tried to tell on myself i want to live there now and i'm picturing the tree in the garden and the the, the rooms i'll have my office in all that kind of thing so it's yeah it's right in the middle of that mm. Yeah, and you're seeing yourself. You're seeing all the ways you bump into yourself in this in this unknown space, right? Yeah. I'm just noticing though, it's like uh, to try and play with that unpolished vulnerability in some ways. It's like it's a really, it's a really diff. Telling that story now, like I've kind of, in a way, I guess I'm noticing I've practiced 
that in different ways. Again, it's been like part of my journey. And I'm also remembering, a, I went to a, an event for coaches once and they had this check-in in these little groups that we were in. This is, this would be a good, this is a good kind of unpolished vulnerability uh, question, actually really hard. It's like, what I don't want you to know about me is, was the check-in. It's really hard to find something that is not so personal that I cannot share it, but isn't one of these polished vulnerability things that are really tempting. Um, and I remember it. I remember the group and it was like, they were all quite different, but they were all, but it, I think it did that thing. And the, the impact of it was swift and big. Yeah, for that group of people who I can basically, you know, half of them I can picture now. Uh, five years later you know i mean we were only there for those those three days or something and and four or five times over those three days we were in these this group of eight or ten it's like it's power they're powerful practices jennifer i wonder if we could we could go back to your story a little bit just to kind of before we you know maybe there are other things like from like that that from the books that we want to we want to jump into and i'm also curious to hear a little bit about kind of patterns that you're seeing in your work at the moment because i think there's some interesting you know with the viewpoints you bring about and the world we live in so i'd like to ask about that you know before we finish but before we do that oh you know we we were talking in your story about the the doctoral and postdoctoral work and then you mentioned the move to New Zealand as a key thing and I think that was you were in New Zealand probably when I first came across your work so I'm guessing you were there a little while um I wonder yeah what were the key things that happened as you moved gradually without really meaning to from supporting teachers and and professors to supporting leaders with um with their developmental challenges. And I think somewhere in there from what I read in the thank yous and, and things like that, of, or the, the, the gratitude soup of, of the latest book, that's partly when you met Carolyn, who's Carolyn Coughlin, who's your co-author around then as well, or, or, or maybe, maybe that's not right, but some key things it sounded like, you know, happened in those must've happened in those steps. And I wonder what, as you look back, what they were. Yeah. yeah I've also got my mind on like how polished is the story as I would tell it, what would I tell you? It's nice that, that we primed be, us for unpolished a little bit as well, haven't we? That would be new. Um, yeah, we moved to New Zealand in 2006. Uh, my husband and I and our little kids. We had a, a five-year-old and a nine-year-old. And it was kind of like our, our adventure. I was a university professor. I was taking a sabbatical i had 12 or 18 months to try this thing and then i was going to go back and um and then i i didn't go back um we haven't been back we haven't lived in the u.s again um because we lived 12 years in new zealand and then moved to london and then we were like four years in london Moved to London for six months and stayed four years, and now, now have moved to France. Uh, I live live in a big house in the southwest of France with um, a bunch of friends. Yeah, but, I, I wanted to but, ask you about the, you about that. Maybe now's the time. I actually went back yeah. and found it because I 
I kind of remember, I've kind of forgotten this. I remember reading a blog you wrote about, I, I thought it was about you having already moved um, because that's what I, when, when I read the, there were some thank yous and, and things about that in, in the latest book as well. But when I found the blog again today uh, that you wrote back in, I think, I can't remember if it's 2020 or, or 2021, mm-hmm. And it wasn't, it was a, it was a dream. It was like, it was, was in the, it wasn't, it was kind of an unpolished vulnerability, although it's hard to do that when you, you're a great writer like you are and you can't help but pull out <laughs> lessons for people in it. Um, but I, I remembered it as being reality already so much that I was a bit disappointed to find out the picture on that article. It's not a picture of the big house in France that you lived in because I kind of, for some reason imagined I, I'd remembered that it was. So yeah, maybe. I have to look at the picture. Yeah. Maybe, I have to look like, at the picture. But to tell us maybe, um, a little about that process, about that dream to reality process. Um, and we'll come back to the other thing in a minute because we can do whatever we like on this conversation. <laughs> well, if, if you're up for this, because it's yeah. like, you, so people can go and read the article. We'll try and we'll try and find a link to it again. I'm sure I'll, I'll have it. Um, there's this really nice thing that Jennifer says at the start of it, which is, have you ever had a conversation over a glass of wine or a cup of coffee with friends where you say you'll go and do I think you you name this one, right? I'll go. We'll go and live in a. Couldn't it be amazing if we go and live in a big house, all of us, in this place or that place or this some other amazing place? And people will recognise that. But that also, I I always think about all the bands I've started. I've never been in a band, but I've started a lot of them. Um, and uh, you know, the all the bars people will open these these things. They just come out and emerge between a group of people sometimes. And like my bands, they never happened, or maybe they happen like for one rehearsal and then it's all over. And yet you are living in a big house in the south of France with friends, colleagues, children, all these kinds of things, I think. So, yeah, what's that like and how did it come about? Totally wacky. It's wacky. The Yeah, so it was in COVID. Um, my friend Wendy, I, I also have, I have, a, I have a weird life because I... You know, I started this firm with a couple of friends, Carolyn and then Keith, with whom I wrote Simple Habits, and Jim and I started this um, firm together. Whatever we don't really even know, like let's say fifteen years ago, ish. Um, and uh, and and now we are about ninety people who work together, um, and still the the thread of friendship is one of the one of the defining colors of our firm right like we uh, deeply value friendship we're founded of friendship we're made of friendship and so um this idea of making communities where relationships are central and um Like we have a commitment to always putting the relationship above money, for example. Um, This has been really important to me. So I happen to work with a ton of people I love, right? This is one of the things you need to know. And so one of those people that I love, a woman named Wendy Bittner, she's on my leadership team. Uh, I adore her. She was having a hard COVID experience, as many of us were. And uh, she was living by herself in California and she was not thriving in this world. And I said, come to London. 
so she got on a plane all masked and she stayed in London for um, a month or six weeks, something like that, living in my house. And we could do nothing, right? Everything was closed and, um, you know, we couldn't go anywhere. She loves good food. She couldn't go to a restaurant. There's nothing to be done. We'd, and she was mostly working still on West Coast US time. So she had like these crazy hours. Um, but we would run into each other in the hall and, you know, we'd see each other when she was off the phone or when I was off the phone, we'd have a glass of wine together. And she was like, I love this. I was like, yeah, I, I also love this. And she was like, we should, we should like buy a house together. I was like, let's do that. And, um, and so we got, you know, I talked to my husband, Michael about it. And like, what do you think about this idea? He's like, I'm, I'm used to you having ideas like this, whatever. Um, um, my friend Zafar Achi gets involved also in this set of people. And suddenly the idea, because there are more of us now, I think with any one of us, the idea would have been like, like one of, like one of your bands, but each of us brought like a different part of reality to this idea. And somehow we had enough parts of reality so the idea started to actually move. And before we knew it, we were like, yes, let's really see what happens. So I wrote a letter and invited everybody in the firm to, to get in on this idea with us. Like anybody who wants to come, just come, we'll buy a house together, come on. And, um, and then like with some trepidation, I waited to see who, who was gonna come. And I totally never would have guessed the people who said yes. I never, if you had said, choose the five people most likely to say yes, I would have chosen five completely different people. Um, and eventually there were 10 of us. And then because offers, whose offer is offers just like, it's like a bulldozer. And suddenly there's a house and we're looking at it. And, um, and then we own it. <laughs> we own it. And, and then suddenly we're living in it. And so there was like this, this series of things, one of the ways I've noticed my life unfolding is um, one small thing leads to the next small thing, which leads to the next small thing. And then like we have arrived at a thing that starting from this point, this is like ridiculous. You would never like our move to New Zealand was like that. Like suddenly we were living in New Zealand and people were like, how did this happen? And the step from living in Washington, D.C. to living in New Zealand was completely ridiculous completely like an incoherent idea like a ludicrous idea and when you and like i would tell stories about it as if it were reasonable it was completely unreasonable and the step from living you know in pimlico in london to living in the french countryside is like completely unreasonable living with all these people and all these people like just putting like a hundred thousand dollars into a pot you know and saying oh let's see if we can buy a castle like if our if our pot of a hundred thousand dollars each gets big enough, we can buy a castle. Um, it's it's ludicrous, absolutely insane. Um, but there it is, there it is, and there we are, there we are. And and there's there's a place that 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 insanity is. There's a way I feel a little bit like uncomfortable about it, like 
It's not very well planned. We didn't do a lot of research, right? Like these things that are like responsible grown-up things to do, we didn't do, really didn't do. And we get into situations all the time where we're like, was was anybody thinking about that? Did we, we like wander in and like nobody, nobody, nobody thought about that. That's a problem. Um and on the other hand, there's there's a way that it's like that is actually the coolest part of life, right? When you find yourself in a clearing in the woods and you make a house there, or you know, you find yourself on an airplane next to somebody and you make a friendship there, or whatever it is um, that we couldn't have planned and predicted, and we don't know what's going to happen next. I have no idea. Literally, I have no idea what's going to happen with this house. We've lived there about a year. It's amazing. We're about to do a big renovation project. Um, this is not necessary. It's just good. And uh, it's going to cost a fortune. And um, and sometimes we look like a sitcom of people that from your seat, you'd be like, don't do this thing. Like you're, you're crazy. Don't do this thing. And sometimes it's like, yeah, but that's what makes it comes fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and it's like um, it seems like it's perfect that it's that it's that way, given you and your colleagues and what you do, because I can kind of hear it in the we shouldn't do it like this, right? Normal people, good people, don't do this kind of stuff. But it sounds like that's also how your it's, it's pretty much how you described how your career worked, and um, yeah, it's like the. I don't know. It feels like there's a real integrity to it because it's it's kind of how you. It feels like I'm not sure I can quite map it, but it, I could have a go. But it it feels like it 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 is the work right that you do. It's like we can't predict it. We can just do some things and try and do them well, and we don't know where we'll end up except the grave at the end. But in the while we're here. We might as well do some things, and um, and you know, it's like I, I'm not going to regret not being in a band, but pe- some people will regret. Maybe I will. I don't know. I feel like I completed my music heroes journey, but uh, like there will be people where it's like all those little bits of friction that can happen. That the people will have regrets about that. What would it be like if we all lived in a place together? And um, yeah, thinking about the house that we're moving to, you know, it's like the exact timing of us doing this, it required, and this place required a crazy sequence of events that we could have never predicted. And maybe it, maybe it won't end in that house, right? And, and we'll be in another, next time we speak in two years or whatever, we'll, you know, there'll be another house that we're in somewhere else, you know, who knows in a different part of the country and the story will still be the same. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful story about ending up there. And I love the sitcom element of it and imagining this um, complexity fit uh, castle in France with um, a bunch of people uh, doing a renovation. That does sound like a great, great sitcom for, for coaches, maybe, at least. And there, there are all these things about like the difference between my dream and the reality. It's not a castle. We bought a was a resort a small very small three-star resort and um and it means that there's like one place one big building 
that's kind of one house. And then there are little dwellings. And I really didn't want that. I really didn't want these separate dwellings. I, I was like, it's going to feel less like we live together, more like we're neighbors. I don't like that. And other people were like, I need that. I was like, I don't like that you need that. They're like, I don't care. <laughs> and um, and we ended up buying this house that has these places. And I see, oh yeah, like a lot of people need that. They need to have their own their their own space that that's really separate, like in this polarity of together and separate. Um, other people need more separate than I do, and uh, and that's super legitimate. And if if we had had it my way, there were all these like early battles of like, how are we going to live together? And I lost almost all of them. I was like, yes, this is my vision. And they were like, yes, I don't like it. <laughs> and, um, and I was like, oh, and, and we've created a really happy home and we have dinner together every night, basically every night. Uh, and sometimes there are three of us and sometimes there are 20 of us. And, um, and if it had been the way I wanted it, it wouldn't have worked so well. And if I had tried to push my agenda, it wouldn't have worked so well. But if I hadn't pushed at all, it wouldn't have happened at all. And so it's this, this question I never know the answer to about when do I push and when do I release? I never know the answer to that. It's always, always up in the air. Um, and the answer is you have to do both. Yeah. Yeah. There's a thing that I can't remember how I, like I just said it to a client one day and then I realized, and now I say it to clients quite a lot, you know, um, just that I often create a vision with them for our work you know, in, in 12 months, what will life be like? What do you want? You know, how do you want more success for us? You know, and what I started saying to them after I think I just randomly said it one day is I've noticed that the specifics of that vision are often wrong, but usually the spirit of it is, is right. Um, and like you said, if there was no vision, we, they wouldn't get the spirit of it in necessarily in 12 months, the, the value in that. And it's in, it's in your book. So I really liked it. You said it just really clearly, this, this, I think it's the same tension or a very similar one, which is um, holding both. I want to be more than I am today, and mm-hmm. holding I am enough as I am. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a yeah. I think it's just it's like a, a paradox, an important human paradox. Yeah, particularly in our profession, right? Because there, there's a thing about the coaching profession that's always like, oh, tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Like, we're going to be better. We're going to be better. We've got to gotta be self-improving all the time. We've got to stay ahead. We've got to be going, going. We've got to, like, be reading more and doing more workshops and have more certifications. And, like, um, and that's just exhausting. It's exhausting. You can never harvest anything if you're like constantly ripping up the field and replanting right um and it's not wrong if we just if we stop learning and we stop growing and then we're trying to help other people learn and grow like that's awful and so yeah the answer to almost all either or questions is both (laughs) 
Yeah, it's another one of those things that's a bit annoying, isn't it? It's a bit like when you see so you can't answer, it's like, oh, but come on. Wouldn't it be uh, nice if there was a right answer? I could just know if I did two hours of reading a week, that would be the right amount. Wouldn't that be really great? That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jennifer, let's like for, for, for uh, what is it, for completionist listeners, let's like, I'm going to ask that question I asked before and then interrupted you to ask about France. Um, and I guess now we've got more language for it. We've got this like, you've ended up where you are. Um, and maybe we're talking more about work now because we've just done a little bit of this about about home um, or, or location. You've ended up where you are. You could never have predicted that. Um, it's, it's probably nothing like how you imagined, especially when you were, leave, were moving to New Zealand as a, to be a professor. Um, without polishing it too much, and you, yeah, great catch to, to mention that before. Like, what are the, just in this moment, what stands out about that that transition, perhaps particularly to maybe the company and it becoming a thing in your in your life. What stands out most? What stands out most is that uh, we never ever ever imagined we would be so big, ever. Uh, when there were three of us. We had a post-it on the wall about how we were going to get to world domination and uh, how we were going to change the world. And it was, we were kidding, right? Like it was a joke. And uh, and we kept it up to kind of remind ourselves we were three random people. And, um, and now we coach really senior leaders at many of the largest organizations in the world, you know, we have a, we have a really crazy amount of impact um, on the lives of you know, thousands, tens of thousands of people, hundred thousand people, you know, like it's a lot, it's a lot. Um, I think what stands out is our friendship really has been the grounding force of our growth um, and how to be fierce, fierce friends with each other, right? To be always, always there on behalf of our unfolding and to really hold each other to the values. It's, it's like the France thing. I, cultivating leadership has um, has gotten really big and, um, and we've just recently changed our ownership structure so that the four of us who created it and own it, we decided early on not to be a partnership because we were serving too many partnerships and we couldn't figure out how that, how that really went well (laughs) in a way. Um, I'm sure it does go well many times, but, um, so we we didn't ever grow from those four. And so we four have owned all the little companies that spread up all over the world under the cultivating leadership umbrella. And uh, and we've just given it away. We just signed up the papers to give it away. We we four gave it away basically to itself. Um, we started a foundation, we gave the company to the foundation, the foundation owns the company folks from inside the company, us and others lead the foundation and then distribute any profits for basically justice and sustainability causes. And um, 
I would never have been able to do this by myself. Right. And, and I'm not sure that the, the forces of either the forces that keep me small, like my own insecurities, my own fear about putting what I believe in the world out into the world, like all the things that make me small or all the things that make me self-protective, like, um, you know, my, my desire to have a bigger return or like to, to, to squeeze more out of the firm or whatever it was like all these, all these, all these shadowy bits of me, which are absolutely there were met by the light in my partners. Right. And when they were in their shadowy bits, then, then my light could shine and we could together hold each other to um, innovate and to um, be true to what mattered most to us, even when we were afraid. And I think that's enabled us to do something that's bigger than any of us could ever have done. Uh, and that we, none of us ever saw coming, ever, ever saw coming. And uh, yeah, I think this is the, this is the thing to say when, when we are building companies that are based in friendship um, and love and commitment to one another, then like all friendships, love and love and commitment, like the greatness that is in us uh, can come out even as the smallness that is in us can be held, can be um, cherished and not allowed to run away with the show. And I think that's where we are. Yeah, and I just caught the echo of that, um, that, that distinction you make in the book. Like I, I want to be more than I am today. The greatness can emerge and I am enough that, the smallness can be held it's really really beautiful and i think that in there in those last two or three minutes you know i had a, you know these questions or thoughts flash through your mind i thought oh the next question can be what are the conditions that help create this and then you just kind of named about i think three or four of them including yeah i think truth in the face of fear and um yeah the fierce friendship it's like that's a great like it's a very evocative little little phrase that gives us a sense of of what's required, you know. Because I guess there's a, those two things are good examples of this, and you talk about this, I think, in both books. You know, there's dangers of being caught by agreement when when and and there's dangers of being you know a group of people who are quite similar to each other, and those things probably play into each other. And I, I imagine. That particularly those two things that I just named, I don't think I got the truth in the face of fear one quite right, but it was something like that. And are true to yourselves in the face of fear and um, the fierce friendship are part of what protects against some of the pitfalls of those things. Mm. I imagine having a bunch of like, you know, developmental psychologists and coaches is, you know, helps in some way because there's probably a bit of self-awareness amongst the, the four of you too. <laughs> That's pretty good. And, or anyway, there's more self-awareness when we're together and we uh, help each other become more aware. Um, but it is a beautiful, you know, you've, you've talked really beautifully there about the power of a group of people, which I think is, um, 
again, for coaches, it's difficult because a lot of us work solo in lots of ways and finding the right partners at different times um, feels important for some people. And I think there is a strong argument that it's important if you want to maximize impact, even in ways that you couldn't have imagined, right? Where you have 90 people as part of this organization now. And, and yeah, the impact, like we talked about right at the start of the call about the ripples from this coaching. And of course you have other programs, you have programs for coaches, you have impact through places like Coaches Rising, but you know, even just the ripples of coaching someone who is a senior leader in a giant organization, even that will, as we talked about at the start, have ripples of, of thousands, tens of thousands, even, even more. Yeah. I wonder with that in mind, um, actually, and uh, with, with the partnerships in mind, one of the really important partners in early in my business was a woman called Nicole Brigandi. And she and I and a friend of ours did, did AODC at the same time. And I think she might have done a growth edge coaching thing. I asked her texted her last night and luckily she landed in the States just in time. I was like, is there anything you want me to ask Jennifer? And she said, she's really curious about what you're seeing. The patterns amongst these senior leaders in how they are dealing with uncertainty, with the the chaos, the the complexity of the world. And that's a big question. Uh, and I guess it might also get into the kind of the work you're actually doing with them as well. What comes up as I ask that or those things? Um, the reason we wrote this new book um, is because people are so exhausted and so overwhelmed. Like I've just never seen so much um, like people on their knees uh, and, uh, and understanding. It was like everybody got disorganized at once. Understanding that the, the way we, we have been won't hold. Um, and yet having no clue about where to go. Uh, so I've just seen this again and again and again and again and again. And now I see, um, I see the different ways people have tried to deal with that. Like organizationally, do we tighten things? Do we centralize? Do we, you know, like try to make it so that this thing doesn't happen again? This, uh, this thing that's so overwhelming and painful? Um, or do we try to build in more fluidity, more flexibility, more capacity? Of course, the answer is both. <laughs> always, so annoying. Always so annoying. Um, so I see these patterns a lot. And I see um, this moment when we are disorganized, I think is one of the it's painful and it's also so creative, right? Like what could happen now? This is, this is the thing that gives me hope in the face of darkness, of difficulty, of the storm that's rolling in the window behind, behind me, um, is the, is this idea that we can create new forms right now because we, the old ones are broken and um, and things are more elastic, more um, malleable than they are usually. And I, I wonder what this means for us as coaches to go into these worlds and to um, 
to hold for our clients the possibility of a bigger dream than they might have been holding for themselves, to hold a bigger dream for what their lives could feel like, um, for what their organizations could do in the world, for, uh, for how we could be together and the, the imperative for us to be together with one another in a, in a different way than we have been before. And, you know, for me, this polarity of like support your clients to have their visions and have a bigger vision that maybe is bigger than they would know how to hold. That polarity is also really alive for me. It's both. We have to help them reach the places they want to reach and um, do what we can to do that in a context that makes their world a little bit bigger, a little bit more filled with possibilities uh, um, than they could have, than they could have been without us. Uh, one of my friends, a podcast guest actually on the show, Mike Toller, he, he wants this great thing to me, which is like, even by just, you know, in a way that is one of the key roles we have as a coach is to kind of show people that things that they believe in are possible. Um, and we do that even just by listening to sometimes by just listening to what they want and by not saying that's a stupid idea, right? If you just hear them and let them say it, it's amazing. He's a psychotherapist as well. And he says, you know, what people don't realize is by the time they've sat down opposite the psychotherapist, they're, they're telling you they believe change is possible. They believe better is possible. So it's like all of that is in there. And then there is this really interesting, I think, piece of leadership that you're talking about. And I think it's, I think it's that same, I mean, maybe everything is that same tension actually between what is it? I am enough as I am and I want more than I am today, which is, is actually just, is actually just stability and novelty. It's order and chaos, isn't it? So it's like a really fundamental thing. But as a coach, there is something we can do, which is we can kind of invite the client into more. And I think there's like a, at least in my work, there's like a, it's incre it is incredibly powerful to sit down with somebody who is essentially has, you know, just 5% more optimism <laughs> about the situation than you. And I think for me, COVID, like I, that same thing you just said about the last couple of years, I, I really felt that I saw a guy called Jordan Hall talk about this right at the start of it. He's a kind of, I don't know what he'd call himself, a philosopher, maybe, I, I don't know. But he said this, thing about chronos and kairos and how this is a period of kairos these are greek for people who don't know maybe uh, you know if, again i may be getting this wrong but chronos is essentially normal time greek with normal time kairos for times of chaos but also times where a lot of things are possible and he talked about if you're smart and brave in those times a lot is, lots is possible and if you've been preparing for a long time like maybe somebody who studied developmental psychology and complexity <laughs> for many years with Robert Keegan and all these other amazing people and then has built this company and then suddenly there is real possibility in those moments for creating change um because maybe to to get specific if you can how do you think about or hold that balance with a client around accepting their vision or their dream as perfect as it is and inviting them to dream more yeah. 
I, I think one of the things we get to do as coaches is we get to have um, access to so many stories. Right? The, the leaders we work with, they're living their story. We can look across dozens of leaders' stories. And so a piece of why I think it's easier for me to hold hope than them, because I've seen it happen, right? I've seen these things get realized. And, and I've seen what happens after one of these periods of disorganization that we can reorganize in a way that's really beautiful and that we can grow. And so I, I, I feel like I have, um, I hold on to that hope on behalf of our larger story um, because hopelessness is uh, not life-giving. Um, and, and so then the question is, how can we help breathe more hope, breathe more possibility in? Because very often the dreams people have for themselves are very small you know, quarterly earnings or um, get this board member on side or whatever. And, and we, we, we get into the tunnel vision of the thing that we think we want and we lose why we think we want it, um, why it matters. But returning to these ideas of purpose, returning to these ideas of like, this is the, the, the one the one life as far as we know that we get for basically just a little bit more than a blink. Um, you know, I, I go into every coaching session with the belief that my, my clients life seconds matter deeply. And, um, and they've sometimes lost that. And that holds us in the space of enough and becoming because today is all we get. Um, and to leave something bigger is all we get to touch into the future. Right. Um, and so to hold both of those things together, I think is a, I think is a thing that, that we in our profession are privileged to be able to, it's like the mountain we get to climb again and again with our clients and we get to know some of the paths and we get to know some of the, some of the perils and some of the things that make the journey a little bit easier. Um, that's pretty, that's a pretty beautiful mountain. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like, you know, amazingly for me anyway, we're coming towards the end of our time. Um, I just, I wanted to kind of, and that feels like a beautiful place to kind of begin to tie the conversation to to an ending. For people that are coming to your work, they want to read one of your books. I've read two of them. I've given a third one away and, and owned it as well. I haven't come, gone into the fourth. Where do you suggest they start and how do the books relate to each other? Mm. As you say, they get shorter. Yeah, um, yeah they're lean and uh, punchy. It is, I mean, it, is, it does mean, that's one of the reasons I give them to clients because mm -hmm. it's like, you know, here's, here's two hours or three, three yeah, hours right. maybe. And there's a lot, there's a lot, there's no, like there's a lot in there. 
if they if people want it. Yeah. So the thing that I try to do is to be on the far side, to have books that are simple on the far side yeah, of complexity. Right. This is my this is my goal. And in these last two books, this is what I've tried to do. They're actually a set. Um, they have the same characters that go through them, and they they take our biology um, from two different questions. Mind traps is about how does our biology get in the way in complexity, and leash your complexity genius is about how does our biology biology really help us out. So they're they're a little bit two sides of the same coin. Those books, um, I that, start was there. Was that the intention from the start that they would be two yeah. sides of the same coin? It was. There was. Yeah. There was always going to be two. Nice. Yeah. No, when I wrote Mind Traps, no, they, this oh. other one didn't exist as an idea. Oh, yeah. um, but during COVID, as I was telling people all the ways their biology was getting in the way, like everybody knew their biology was getting in the way during COVID. So it's like yeah. I get it, Jennifer. <laughs> I get it. What do I do? Um, so this book was more in the, what do I do space? Um, how can I look at my embodied system and say, oh, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and so I'd start there. I'd start there. Uh, simple habits was meant to be, um, like a leadership program in a book. And, uh, and I feel really proud of that book. And it's, I think it does many, many good things, puts many ideas together. Um, uh, but it's a lot, it's a lot. And the first book changing on the job is, um, really about how we grow. It's the story of our, our growth. And if you're interested in, you know, like, Bob Keegan, when people ask him, what book should I read about your theory? He says, actually read Jennifer's first book, mm. <laughs> um, which is like very moving for me. Um, yeah. So if you get passionate about this question of how do we grow and change over time, changing on the job is a good, a good book to read. But I'd start with one of the two most recent and, um, and dip in and see what you think. Yeah. And I think you've answered one of the questions I was going to ask really, which is in those two most recent ones, you don't go into in really brief detail into uh, developmental, adult developmental theory, really. It's, it's like brief, it's like a little snippet in Mind Traps, I think, and, and a little mention here and there in the other one. And just given the answer, right, which is that the attempt is have all of that, go through all that learning and then get to whatever's simple on the other side, which I love. I, I also wanted to say, because this happened just before the calls, I was just finishing the book. Um, in both books, so yeah, for people to know, in, in, in the books, there's a kind of fictional story that runs alongside the like the practices that are in each book. And there's a funny footnote, definitely in the second one, I think there's a similar one in the first saying, if you hate the story, skip it. Um, and I think that's funny. I want to maybe ask you about that, you know, if you go into it, but a really unusual thing happened reading a nonfiction, which is that I actually started crying quite a lot mm -hmm. at a moment in that story. And mm -hmm. I kind of wanted to tell you that because it, it does happen to me in stories. It's why I mm -hmm. read the fiction that I read mm -hmm. and with the stories that I have, but it's, it's this moment. Can I find it? It's not going to make sense for people who haven't read it, but it's this moment where Pete's in the cafe mm -hmm. looking around. And I think I just got this, you know, it's kind of amazing. He says, 
how the pieces just fell into place once I decided it was a worthy experiment and just this sense of like, it's a beautiful part of the story, sense of what was almost lost mm. because of, um, what would we say? Like not in the language of the book, not leaning into the complexity genius, just not, mm. not knowing how to deal with everything that life throws at us, which is really, really, really hard for all the reasons we've been talking about in this conversation something really beautiful mm. in that and i wanted to share that with you because i don't know if anyone's told you that your you know the story that you and karen wrote made them cry over their salad thank you thank you yes i tend to get like jennifer could you write a book without the stories i hate the stories could you just <laughs> tell me the stuff i hate the stories and i like my the i was a teacher but i was also a novelist i uh the first books i wrote were novels um never published um and so the the thing i I kind of write the rest of the book so that I can have a carrier for the stories. Um, and, and also those stories, it first happened in Simple Habits, which also has a story that runs through it. Um, uh, the stories sometimes tell me when my theories are crap uh-huh. or when the practices are crap this, because the characters are like, I won't do that. That's, that's a stupid thing to do. And it's like, here's me, the theorist saying like, this is a good idea. And the fictional characters are like, this is a stupid idea. I'm like, oh, that's actually a stupid idea. It's like, you know, and no, no way it's worth like working with an audience. Um, and so, yeah, these stories are, um, I, I learn a lot from them. Um, and, and yet some people, I don't think my mother, who, as you know, is like one of my role models and she's amazing. I don't think she's ever read any of the stories. She loves these books. She gives me tons of feedback. Um, she's super helpful. If, if I said, you know, like Pete, she would not know who this person is. She would not. I don't think she's ever read these stories. She's like, Jennifer, I don't like the stories. That's okay. It's okay. I wrote it so that you could, you don't need the stories. Um, but I think they make it a lot more fun. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Um, Jennifer, it's been such a pleasure in this, in such a rich conversation, you know, is there anything before we finish? Is there anything that you, we haven't touched on, or anything that that just feels like it's important to say or, or share? I think it goes back to something you were saying earlier, which is that coaches are often we're often in onesies and twosies. Right? We're, we we do most of our work alone. We don't get to see each other do work. Like it really is this. For for a, a job that's like primarily about connection, it's very it, it's a very lonely, um, lonely thing. And I really think uh, that we need each other in really big ways. I really think the work of coaching, the work of leading, it's just impossible to do alone. It's just impossible. And so podcasts like yours, communities you're building, communities like my growth edge coaching community, whatever it is, right? Like the adult development, the AODC, the coaches rising community, all all these communities, they give me hope because um, leaders need us. People need us. The supports that guided us for generations are crumbling or already fallen apart and we are some of the most important new supports 
to helping people grow into the capacities they need and we need them to have. Uh, and for us to do that work well, we need each other. And so um, finding ways to be in community and to be pushing our ideas around so that so that we watch out for the real dangers in our jobs, uh, not just the isolation, but the our relationship to power. We need to work on our relationship to our own theories. We need to work. Like there's work for us to do all the time. Uh, and coaching is an unregulated business, unlike psychotherapy, psychology. Um, and the regulation has its own pitfalls, like I understand. I'm not asking for that. Um, but it means we have a commitment to do that work and to and to know that a piece of that work is in deep relationship with other people who are doing this work. So I'm grateful for you and what you do to offer like a little windows in to this uh, this profession that happens behind closed doors uh, and for all of the expansion that happens because of those windows in. So thank you. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And and yeah, I feel the same about the work that you're doing and what you've just done there is a great little list of, of places that people can get some of that. Um, you know, I've been part two and I, I've heard great things from friends who have done, who have been part of the growth education community. So yeah, people should check all those out um, and and think think carefully about, about that. I think those in there in what you just said it, yeah definitely resonates with me both about community and about the work the responsibilities we have because there are no there is no one else taking responsibility for whether we are doing right. the the work the world needs the ethical work or that kind of thing except us really right. so um yeah like you say like everything in this conversation right it's that's both good and uh, not so good jennifer thanks so much thank you for this conversation Hello everybody, Robbie here again. Just a couple more things before you go on to whatever else you've got um, happening today. Um, thanks so much for listening to this conversation between me and Jennifer. Um, I hope you got out of it as even a proportion of, of what I had from having it and what an absolute pleasure it was to speak to somebody who's been a huge influence on me. Um, if you are interested in supporting the show, um, there are two ways you might you might want to do that. One is you could become a supporter of the show. You can give a small amount of money every month. Uh, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash thecoachesjourney um, or at thecoachesjourney.com. Um, and if you give a small amount of money every month, it helps me keep the show going. It helps uh, the, the show reach more people. Um, and you get a few things uh, in thanks for that, including depending on how much you give, videos, um, advance notice of guests, and more. Um... You also might be interested in becoming a member of the Coach's Journey community, and this is the most flexible and affordable way for me to be your coach. Um, we do work on growing businesses and on developing as people in that the idea is that amongst a group of people, in a similar way, in some ways to, to how Jennifer was talking at, at the end of the conversation, if we come together, we can support ourselves, we can keep going, um, we can thrive as people and create thriving businesses. And, and I, I hope you heard from Jennifer and I how important we think coaches are, can be, uh, given the challenges that the world 
is facing. So you can find out lots more about the Coach's Journey community at thecoachesjourney.com slash community um, or again on the Coach's Journey Patreon page. Um, and yeah, before before we go on, you know, big thanks to everyone who supported the podcast over the years, but particularly for the for their ongoing support, Alex Witten, Joey Owen, Alex McIntyre, Alex Swallow, not everyone is called Alex, but particularly these Alexes, Joey, Ken Brewer, and, and Neil McKinnon, and, and many other people too. Um, hope to have you back with us on the Coach's Journey uh, podcast sometime soon. Um, and yeah, just wishing you a wonderful rest of the day. <laughs>